When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. G'day, I'm Mitchell Johnson, and for 10 years I bowled fast for Australia. Knocks him over with pace. What a start for the Aussies. For 10 years I had batters shaking in their boots, but I did so without always feeling comfortable in my own shoes. Pryor's going to have to go. Mitchell Johnson's on fire. For the outside world, I came across as a fire-breathing dragon with ball in hand. On the inside, I was battling my own demons without always getting to talk about it. But now I'm retired, my left arm can't do the talking for me, so I've decided to open up and talk for real. So let's do this. In comes Mitchell Johnson now. This is the Mitchell Johnson Cricket Show. You're listening to the Mitchell Johnson Cricket Show. I'm Bharat Sundaresan coming to you from uh, Chennai, India. I'm here for the World Cup. Uh, Mitchell Johnson unfortunately hasn't joined me, not yet, but I still think I can woo him over. Uh, but he's sitting at home in Perth. Uh, how are you doing, Mitch? And welcome to the show. Yes, Bharat, I'm good, mate. Just chilling at home, enjoying the, the sunshine here. Uh, I'm sure you're enjoying it in Chennai. It's already been a, a pretty good start in the World Cup with... England being beaten. Anything under 300, I think, is you know pretty easy to chase over there in India. Yeah, New Zealand, um, they look like they're a, a pretty strong team. They always have been. They've been in the last two finals of the World Cups. Um, they're always a very competitive one-day side. They're a great unit, so look out. I always call them the favourites for the semi-final. Like people call them dark horses and all that, but they they are always in the semi-finals. 2011 they made the semi-final. 2007 they made the semi-final. Then there they did. Uh, so yeah, they they're always there, there and thereabouts. 99 they made the semi-final. So they almost are a shoe in for the semi-finals. Maybe you can call them dark horses to win the tournament from that point on because they haven't done it technically. But and I have to say this, I know it's pretty cliched. But just hearing an Australian cricketer, former, current, future, uh, talk about an English defeat, the, the smile itself <laughs> is different. And when you come in as the defending champions, and uh, not just the defending champions, as uh, the team who have redefined the format itself, um, and to be given a lesson in your, uh, or, or given a taste of your own medicine, right? Yeah, well, exactly. And they've, they've been the leaders in one-day cricket, I believe, with the way they've changed the game, England. And look, maybe teams have caught on to it now and caught up to that style of play and understand it a lot better. Um, we're seeing other teams trying to go down that path as well, like Australia with their batting lineup, a lot of all-rounders, a lot of big hitters. So look, I think maybe teams have, have caught on to it a bit more now and uh, understanding of it. So it's going to be interesting to see how England bounce back from this. Um, obviously, it's a, you know, a first match of the tournament is huge and and you want to win that first one as a team and it's you know the two finalists of, of last uh, World Cup and it's a tough game to start with but and someone has to win it and you know New Zealand like I said they they seem to be always there and thereabouts and I think where they're 
exceptional is actually their fielding. That the back end of my career it was talked about was their was their fielding. I mean, their bowling and their batting attack is is very good, um, but I think it's their fielding that really lets them um, take that edge. And yeah, you know, I think they're going to be a tough team. Yeah, I mean, New Zealand in many ways have uh, got the ball rolling uh, for what should be quite an open tournament. It already feels like it. Yeah, definitely. I think it will be quite an open tournament. It's it's a bit hard to pick, and but that's World Cup cricket. I think uh, in the one-day format, we see teams a lot closer together. I don't know. I think the the T20 stuff has definitely had an influence on on the style of play. And I think, like I said at the start of this, you know, teams are probably backing themselves a bit more with the way that they play with the bat. Um, they're going. You're seeing run rates. Uh, they're pretty high, and we're going to see some runs um, in this tournament with with the conditions over in India. It does get better to bat on as as the day goes on. I think one thing that probably disappointed me a little bit was the crowd uh, wasn't quite there at the start. You'd like to see a stadium full at the start of a World Cup, but it's going to be a great tournament. It's always talked about like one day cricket is dead. It's in a bit of trouble, I think, but World Cups always bring one day cricket back on the on the radar and, and you'll see some exciting cricket. And we are here today to talk about uh, World Cups. Uh, not so much this one, though obviously we had to touch uh, on what is happening right now in India. But going back in time to 2007, it seemed like a given Australia would win the World Cup. And they did win the World Cup without even losing a game or without even uh, getting number nine to bat, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, that's how it's one of the more comprehensive performances from any team uh, in a 50-over World Cup in men's cricket. And you were there. And even though you don't remember much about the 2011 World Cup, even though you played in every game, uh, <laughs> 2007, you were part of the squad, uh, but you didn't get, a, uh, get play a single game. Uh, but it was your first experience of uh, World Cup cricket, uh, at least at the senior level. Uh, and so that's what here we are here to talk about. And uh, um, anyway, you brought up the crowds and how disappointing the crowds were in Ahmedabad to start with. And I'm sure there are a variety of reasons for that. But the Caribbean was kind of similar, right? Uh, it was the first ever time a big cricket event was being held in the Caribbean and a lot of new stadiums and all of that. Uh, so uh, even before we get into um, your experience of uh, you know, being around that winning side, uh, what was that like? I mean, was it kind of similar, like where uh, the interest levels weren't quite the same, uh, even though it was a World Cup? Uh probably similar in some ways i think the grounds were a lot smaller so maybe um i I remember most of the games that we played in that they were were good good crowds they weren't packed houses um until you sort of got to the back end of the tournament uh, which is you know sort of understandable i guess Um, you definitely saw a lot of foreigners over there at the time so people following their teams like the the barmy army and i know there was a lot of aussie there was a, a lot of my mates um that I played cricket with in um, Queensland and Perth and um, well, Perth later on anyway, found out that they were over in um, watching the the World Cup. So, I mean, you had all that sort of spread around the, the tournament. And I guess when you go to the, the West Indies, you expect the drums to be played, the music, uh, the dancing, and there was a lot of that as well. So, But there was a, a few new stadiums that probably didn't reach their capacity. Uh, the Viv Richards... Oh yeah, the uh, one in Antigua, the sorry, Antigua, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was that was quite an interesting app. Like, I think that's the first time I saw a pool at the ground. Yeah. So they had a pool um, at that ground, which was you know quite new, and and people were enjoying that. But 
Yeah, look, I think um, when it comes to the back end of the, the World Cup, you'll definitely see the crowds. Um, I guess you can't really compare it to the Australian uh, 2015 World Cup. I think that first game was, was quite big. But again, yeah, look, I think that the crowds will come. I know in India that they really do love their T20 cricket and the short format of the game. The conditions over there are quite hot and humid and, and it sort of tends to uh, keep people away sometimes. And I mean, with TV over there uh, and apps and things like that, people like to have that comfort now. So, I mean, we even find that here in Australia, like people probably uh, preferring to, to stay at home and, and they've got that availability through apps and, and whatever's on TV as well. So it was, a for me, the 2007 World Cup was pretty cool. I, I enjoyed it and it was a great experience. And, and this is back when there was only one World Cup in cricket, right? A T20 uh, cricket had obviously started. Uh, uh, and yes, T20Is were becoming a thing. Uh, but this particular World Cup happened, what, five months before the first ever World T20. So World Cups just meant 50 over cricket world cups and it almost feels like they i'm not saying they had more significance then but uh if you weren't wanted to be called a world champion you had to win the 50 over world cup you had to be the best team in that format uh, regardless of whether uh you were great in test cricket like you guys were for a long long time um and there was no other format so like just just can you talk about what it felt like when you were uh when you did realize that you are going to play a world cup or you're going to be at a cricket world cup yeah, I mean, it's the it's the pinnacle of one-day cricket. The comparison is, uh, I guess, like an Ashes um, series for in Test cricket. Like, that was the, the pinnacle. Um, this was the pinnacle in one-day cricket. You wanted to go to World Cups. You wanted to be involved. And I definitely wanted to be playing in, in that World Cup. And it was my, I think it was my first, yeah, 06, 07 was when I started at the end of, oh, yeah, 06, start of 07. So it was, um, you know, pretty exciting for me to be, in that squad with so many great players of the game and um, there were so many great experiences. I actually did play in a warm-up game. So there was two warm-up games and I think we played, the one I played in was against England and it was quite nerve-wracking for me because I knew that there was one spot available for a fast bowler and it was basically out of myself and Sean Tate. And I think I played the first warm-up game and then he played the second one and I probably choked a bit uh, to be honest I got really nervous and because I really wanted to to be in that squad and he came out and just bowled absolute thunderbolts and bowled really well and then continued on throughout the tournament as we saw he, he I don't know if he was the leading wicket taker or he was up there he definitely was an enforcer through that world cup and it was spoken about a lot and and I, I think it was in the first game when we played Scotland in Barbados and that pitch was very fast and it was flying through. I really did feel sorry for him, uh, the batsman trying to face Sean Tate when he was just letting him rip. He was bowling 150 plus and he was doing it consistently and um, yeah, he just he just came out and he owned it. So yeah, it was um, a, a tough one at the time to take because I was so yeah, eager to play in a World Cup and after that World Cup, we came home and um, I remember in the papers it was reported that myself and Brad Haddon were on a well-paid holiday because that's when we all got paid the same amount of prize money. Ricky Ponning had made it so we all got paid the same because we all worked our, our butts off to, to be there and um, yeah, so it was a well-paid holiday apparently but 
yeah, it was um, it was more than that to me. It was um, a great experience, and I learned so much from it. You said you just started at uh, started playing regularly for Australia in that 2006-7 summer. I think you make your debut in 2005. Uh, you play uh, one ODI, but uh, so you'd played pretty much every game uh, consistently leading into that World Cup. Uh, I mean, everyone listening to this in India or everyone, uh, I, I guess not just in India, anywhere else. Uh, the first time we really heard of Mitchell Johnson uh, or saw what Mitchell Johnson could do, obviously Dennis Lilly had already spoken uh, a lot about you, was the four wickets you took in that uh, game in Malaysia, I think a rained-off game. Uh, and I'm sure we'll speak in detail about that. Uh, but like, where did you think your one-day cricket was? I mean, you're so young and so new still on the scene uh, when this World Cup comes around. Yeah, well, one-day cricket was... I felt like it was a really good learning platform. Even though, yeah, you're playing for your country and, and you, it's, you've got to go out there and win and, and, and produce and get wickets. But it was a great learning experience to learn about bowling in different situations of the game. And that ultimately helped me play test cricket as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I often saw myself as a opening bowler. But when it came to one-day cricket, I, I was bowling first change um, and, and I had to work on different skills. So like bowling cutters and different field placements, setting up batsmen in a different way because once you came on as a first uh, first change bowler or second change bowler, generally that's when the, the game had slowed down a little bit you know, your opening bowlers would come out and they'd try and blast a couple of wickets. If not, the, the batsmen were going after that as well because the field's set in, you only had two out. So that time when I'd come into the game, the field would start to be spread and then you'd have to figure out another way because the batsmen weren't as aggressive. So yeah, bowling around the wicket. Um, I think I remember uh, bowling in Bangladesh as well um, where I had to really focus on that and try and figure out because the p- pitches over there were pretty flat and there wasn't much for a, for a bowler in it. So, um, so yeah, you had to really, you know, one-day cricket was a great um, learning curve for me and something that I always say that helped my test cricket um, because of the skills that I had to learn. And, and do you remember the moment when you found out that, yeah, I am part of that squad and not just any squad, uh, the squad uh, that had so many players who had already won two World Cups leading into 2007. Yeah, well, I mean, Glenn McGrath was one of those guys um, and I actually got his World Cup shirt. I'll, I'll tell the story of that. I, I Actually, I don't remember the phone call of getting into the World Cup squad, but what I do remember in that World Cup with, with you know those great guys was like Glenn McGrath. I, I got his shirt. I asked him, I think we were playing South Africa where he absolutely dominated, smashed them. It was brilliant to watch. Just absolutely dominated them. And I remember walking up to him at the game, we were, we were batting, and I said, oh, Pidge, do you, um, look, I'm really nervous to ask you, but do you think I can get a shirt like signed at the end of the tournament? He goes, yeah, mate, no worries. He goes, what are you nervous for? He goes, we're teammates. <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, because I was still fairly fresh in the team, and, and I wasn't a big person on collecting like T-shirts or memorabilia or anything like that, but I don't know, I just felt like... You know, he was coming to the end of his career. I was starting mine and I've actually got that shirt in my gym at home here and um, it's hung up with a couple of other little items that I did collect. For me, that was just a nice little moment. Um, but like I said, I don't really remember getting the phone call uh, on being selected. I do remember through that World Cup though because I didn't bowl well in that warm-up game. I 
had to obviously continue to be ready to play. So, you know, I was myself and Brad Haddon were working extremely hard behind the scenes. I was bowling a lot. He was keeping, batting, doing all those things. I remember feeling really good bowling in the nets and I just kept, you know, getting better and better. I had a little uh, confrontation with Matt Hayden actually in one of the net sessions and that was around I was bowling a few short balls at him and he blew up that I was he thought I was bowling over the front line and I'd actually been working on keeping my foot behind the line and I said, I am, I'm keeping my foot behind the bloody line, mate. And he goes, he comes up and Haydos is big and he struts down and he looks at line and he's like, yeah, fair enough. And he goes back and the net session continued. But I was at that stage of the tournament. This is probably halfway through. Getting a bit of frustration out as well because I wanted to be out in the middle. But there was my way of doing that. I had to try and bowl really well in the nets. I didn't have a chance. Although I had that first chance in the warm-up game, I didn't have any other chances. So... Uh, I was, you know, bowling my best and I felt really good. And I think it was Andrew Hilditch was the chief selector at the time. And I sat down with uh, with him and had a bit of a chat about, you know, oh, I've got to pick me. Like, I'm, I'm feeling really good. And But the thing was, the team was going so well. You can't drop anyone um, just because someone's bowling well on the net. So um, I learned a pretty good lesson in that, that World Cup about always being ready and... You know, if, if something did happen, if Sean Tate or someone went down, I was ready to go. Uh, so it was a, a tough lesson at the time. And, and, you know, I was just eager to get out there and play a World Cup game. But um, unfortunately, it didn't happen. But fortunately, I was there as well. I was there to be a part of such a, an amazing World Cup. More lessons, more stories uh, and more experiences <laughs> uh, of Mitchell Johnson's very first World Cup after this little break. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. You are listening to the Mitchell Johnson Cricket Show, where Mitch is uh, uh, taking us back in time to 2007. His uh, first ever experience of uh, being part of a World Cup squad. Uh, and what a squad it was, uh, Mitch. You, you speak about uh, wanting to be there, I mean, wanting to be out there in the playing 11. But you spoke about Sean Tate and the impact he was having in that World Cup. But then this is Glenn McGrath playing in what would be his swan song, right? He retires after the final. Uh, Nathan Bracken, a rather underrated performer for Australia over the years. Yeah. He, he was going through that golden run at that point. He takes a lot of wickets with that uh, wonderful long flowing hair, which would have caught my fancy as you would not surprise you. <laughs> um, uh, and then there was also Stuart Clark, who had such a strong uh, Ashes campaign uh, in 06, 07. Uh, and there was you. And not to forget, at this point, Shane Watson was bowling pretty quick as well. I mean, he was still young. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's had a few injuries, but he was bowling pretty quick as well. And he was having an impact with the ball. So it, it was a bloody tough team to break into, regardless of how well you were bowling uh, behind the scenes. Yeah, exactly. You, you name all those names. And I think um, one name in particular, Nathan Bracken, like you say, is probably a guy that hasn't been spoken about enough Um 
uh, maybe at the time he was and he was in that purple patch and he really adjusted his one-day uh, bowling style to suit whatever conditions and he would often um, try and – well, the big thing for him, it was trying to swing the ball early and get it up there nice and full and then once that swing had gone, he would use his change-ups really well and he hit it really well, um, his off-cutters, uh, slower balls – but he'd also go around the wicket a lot, and he didn't often see that that much. I think in in the game, like so, I th- I feel like he was a one of those guys that probably kickstarted that to be a bit more consistent to go around the wicket and be confident to do it because he would often do it to uh, you know go around to a, a right hand batsman just to change the angle and and use that to his advantage. But yeah, really good bowler. He actually hit the bat a bit harder than you expected as well. So it wasn't as, as, as slow as some people may have thought. But yeah, he was he was definitely a, a, a pretty bloody good asset for the team. And if I'm yeah in the team and I'm thinking, how, how am I getting in this team when you've got those guys doing what they're doing? But like I said, it was, it was the best learning experience for me. It's a bit like when I first came into the, the Ashes squad when, you know, the, the guys were... A few of those guys were finishing up with Hayden, Justin Langer, had Warney there, McGrath. So all those guys, and to be around that was a great learning experience. So it was the same thing through that World Cup, and um, yeah, it was just a it was just a great experience and a lot of a lot of great times as well. We played hard and we had a good time while we were there. I mean, you have to give yourself that time to relax. But I mean, the hard work that I saw came from guys like Matt Hayden, who it, I think it's well reported, but through that World Cup, he hogged the bowling machine. He wouldn't let anyone else have a hit on the bowling machine. He would just hit for hours on it. And people would wait and then they'd have to unpad or go somewhere else and do something else because he just would smash ball after ball after ball. And he did this thing where he would get the bowling machine set and all he would do was hit over the top, back over the bowler's head, and he would set himself up, good shape, keep his head down and wouldn't even look where the ball was going. He would just like leave his head down, smack it. It, it just was in absolute form um, that you'd, you you sort of wish upon that you could, you know, reach and, and he did. And, but because it was the hard work that he did and he um, got that 100 in, was it St. Kitts? I think it was. And they ended up giving him the key to the city or the town and it just obliterated South Africa. Bowlers like Pollock who were, you know, world class and he was just destroying them. So yeah, I, I learnt like again, I just learnt so much and I respected the guys for what they did and, and they say it was a well paid holiday, but I know when I look back at it and, and I think about it and, and look at the, the hard work and, and what I learnt from it, it was um I, I was a part of that squad. Australia, even though you know, they were coming off two World Cup wins. A lot of players uh, who were in 2007 uh, had been around in 99 and 2003, but they were ready to experiment, right? I was just looking up the, the scorecards and Glenn McGrath, I think, bold first change in a, a lot of those games. Uh, and when you think Glenn McGrath, you just assume that he bowled the first over of every game. But he didn't. And even at that stage of his career, he was ready to give up the new ball uh, to Nathan Bracken and uh, Sean Tate just because they were having the kind of impact they were having. Yeah, and, and I do remember that um, and the conversations around that. He was, he was stoked to be able to give those guys that opportunity um, because, like you said, he, he could have easily just pulled the 
you know, I'm the best bowler here. Why I should be I should be bowling first first over. Um, but he understood the uh, the dynamics of the team and and what they were trying to achieve, and he bought into it. And that's why they were such a great team because, it, look, he, he probably deep down probably wanted to bowl the first over, but he just knew that that was going to be the best for the for the side when you've got Bracken who's swinging it and Tate bowling absolute thunderbolts. It's a it's a good way to to kickstart. You know, teams don't want to be facing a, a guy bowling 150 plus, and then you've got at the other end someone swinging it left armor using angle, um, something a bit different. And then first change, you, you know, if you haven't gotten away at the start, Glenn McGrath is not going to let you get away. And but by that stage, teams are thinking we have to like get some runs on the board here. So he was just dominating in that position. So yeah, ultimately, I think. Yeah, he, he just was the, the professional that you wanted in your team and um, just an all-around good bloke and knew knew that that was going to be best for our best suited for the team. Yeah, and, and it's not that it was just the fast bowlers who were having an impact either. Right? Brad Hogg was uh, like he did in 2003. Uh, another unsung star of Australia's white ball uh, domination during that period. Uh, he had a really good World Cup yet again. You, you had Andrew Simons uh, uh, who at that point had developed as a uh, a genuine all-rounder. Uh, he could do all sorts. He could do medium pace, bowl off spin. Uh, and Michael Clark uh, was an extremely useful spinner as well. And you still had Brad Hodge and you still had so many options. And not to forget Shane Watson. Yeah, I mean, some great power hitters. Uh, and I remember, Ho- yeah, Hodge, was, he, he was on fire. He was always tough to bowl to because he could hit all sides of the ground. And if you didn't get him out early, he was one of those guys, that, I guess that you see with the best players. If you didn't get them out early, they just had that focus about them and that concentration was set and they wanted to bat for long periods of time. A surprise package, I think, through that tournament for, for other teams. Uh, not for us. We, we knew what he was capable of. Yeah, he was brilliant. But I just wanted to go back to Simons. Through that World Cup, I mean, he he bowled the last... Was it the last over in the World Cup final when it was it was really dark? And I remember sitting, sitting watching it and, and thinking about like, you couldn't see a thing, but he came on to bowl spin just so because the game was done. With I don't think it was ever going to be you know Sri Lanka um, ever going to get that those runs, but um, yeah, I just remember him out there and um, yeah, them all running off the field, and I ran onto the field and you know just getting embraced, and um, it was an absolute great time. And and to be there with guys that I played Queensland with, and another little story on Simon's throughout that tournament was. Not a very nice one, actually. We, we'd actually been out. We had our partners with us, and we'd had a few drinks, and and we're in uh, Barbados at the time, and we'd been to one of the, the pubs there, and a heap of us came out, and we walked down the stairs to go into to the cab rank, and Andrew was standing there, and and he's quite a big guy. If you ever stood next to him, he's 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 a he's a big big man. I think he's six foot three, and he was quite a solid lad. And these two guys had come up to him they were pretty sure they were two Aussie guys and one of them had his camera phone with him recording while his mate came up and slapped him across the face so he was recording it to get a reaction from Simons because I think they just wanted to send it into the papers to see what's happening over there with the Australian team and etc but we uh, I think it was Gilly and maybe Huss they tackled him into a cab Andrew Simons, they tackled him in, got him in, and they sent him home. But that could have ended really poorly, and that could have could have derailed the the whole World Cup 
campaign as well because those kind of things you know you don't want to ever happen it just seemed like it was a massive setup and really disappointing to when you've got fans that have come from australia to watch you play and they go and do something like that just to you know maybe get a couple of thousand dollars for sending in a, in a, in a tape so yeah i remember that story like quite clearly and i was it was so so disappointing but it also made you realize that you've just got to be so careful when you're out in public and you're a public figure and ultimately you're the one that um is is going to be in trouble if he swings back and so anyway that's a bit of a world cup it's not quite cricket related but you know um i do remember that quite clearly uh, that's why we do the show for these stories uh which will be also <laughs> what happened in the cricket no but uh, you're right i mean this is before um social media really took off and that's crazy yeah that's crazy you're right the only thing you as the as a cricketer or the celebrity can do is is make it worse for yourself and he, I, i guess he got lucky that you guys were around or you know adam gilchrist and michael hussey were around to make sure that he didn't respond because anybody's reaction at that point would be to you know hit back uh if especially if he gets slapped on the face exactly and i mean that's that just goes to show that the team that we had at that time how the, the special bond they had as well and we'd been on that boot camp before that world cup so um you know all of us had been in that uh situation of having each other's back and and it, it proved in that situation that everyone had their you know back not just on the field but it was off the field as well that made a, a huge difference in that situation i feel oh uh, yeah totally and, and you know you could see it uh, even as a fan or as as an outsider just watching in that uh this was a really tight knit group on the field and you were always charging in literally and figuratively speaking uh and to be part of that side uh would have been quite something and, and again right like it's happened only twice in history mitch where a team has won back to back world cups uh, uh like west indies did it of course in 75 and 79 and you guys did it in 99 and 2003 so what kind of conversations are being had like you've done it twice uh, uh, rinse and repeat or yeah it wasn't that at all it was it start fresh like it was it's from day one and the lead in the the well the lead into that world cup it was important to make sure that guys were were firing and making sure they were doing all the right things and and playing their roles it was yeah that lead in was really important and then also it was um once we got there it was to have uh that focus of when we're at training was to to do do the work we weren't there for a holiday even though you can get caught up on and the caribbean it's a it's a lovely place uh, to be and you look at the ocean and look we had our times when we could do that go out and celebrate or um experience a bit of the place but for the most part it was we were there to do a job and it was to take one game at a time and it was to have that focus of not getting too or getting overconfident um knowing that you know would, and and Ricky was very very vocal about that as well with the way he captained it was he was very fierce and and very uh you know he he stood up on plenty of occasions and it was just not just with the bat or in the field it was as a captain he would um you know question things if if things weren't um he didn't think were were quite right with the umpires or um he did all the little things i think is what i'm trying to say he did all those little things and it was um really important to have a strong leader and and he was confident but 
yeah, not overconfident. And I saw that again. I saw that with the boot camp where he was really strong as a leader. And I saw the best of him through that boot camp when, like I, I have mentioned, is, is when I was the team leader in a activity that we were doing and he came up and said, you're the leader, we'll follow you, you um, we'll back you 100% and et cetera, et cetera. He, he just, yeah, he was just a great leader in all those situations and um, through that World Cup, he just had a really good really good plan, really simple, work hard, train hard, um, have a good time when we get the chance and then um, back onto, you know, once we're back on the training paddock, we're, we're doing all the work that we need to do and um, leave no stone unturned. Uh, unturned. So um, pretty simple sort of game plan but, yeah, it was, it was being fierce, being strong, playing the brand of cricket Australia play it was that aggressive brand of cricket um, and don't give any team an inch like and when you had that opportunity when you were ahead of the game it was not to let that pass you wanted to keep the foot on the throat and continue to keep that pressure on so it was all about that pressure the way that they played through that world cup it was the Australian way to play all right, Mitch, we'll just take another a little short break. And when, when we come back, we'll talk a little more about uh, the longest ever 50-over Men's World Cup, uh, which some believe is still going on somewhere in the Caribbean. Uh, but uh, thankfully, we have you with us. Uh, uh, that and a lot more when we come back. Uh, you're listening to the Mitchell Johnson Cricket Show. We are talking about the 2007 uh, World Cup that Australia dominated from start to finish. And speaking of domination, I mean, you just look at the results. They, they tell you how uh, dominant they were. First game, Scotland, Australia win by 203 runs. Second game, Australia v Netherlands, Australia win by 229 runs. All right, you can argue associate cricket wasn't what it has become. I guess the only time... Australia came to being tested or there was a time when you felt like the other team uh, had a chance, Mitch, was in that third game against South Africa. Australia bat first, 377. You spoke about the 100 uh, from Matthew Hayden. Uh, this is the game at St. Kitts. One for 220. Maybe they were in with a chance, but then they were blown away and I think they lost in the last nine wickets for 70 runs. And when you think that's the closest any team came even to threatening Australia, it tells you everything you need to know. They were going along at a pretty. They were going pretty well, and I think the feedback uh, or what I felt was that if we just kept bowling well, kept bowling in good good areas, and keep the pressure on by bowling the way that we wanted to bowl, um, and and look the pressure in the field as well. That was another thing that was spoken about, making sure that we're trying to stop twos and and maybe singles as well. That's where the pressure ended up coming. Once once we got that first wicket, then it was uh, a slippery slope. But I think it's uh, that run out that started it. So it was it was it started in the field, and it was by keeping that pressure on. Um, so I don't think at any stage through that innings or the start of that innings, Australia were too concerned. Um, you know, like I said, I was running on and off the field. Um, you know, there's a few messages going on and off and that was just basically keep that pressure on keep um keep up in the field and um, keep just bowling good balls um it's once it comes it come it'll come so and it did so yeah i guess yeah you look at the tournament it may not have been the two strongest teams we started against and we come up against south africa who i said whom i said was probably the um one of the strongest teams in the tournament 
and just to be able to, yeah, blow them away after such a good start, um, yeah, it's pretty satisfying. And then finally, Mitch, you get to that final uh, in Barbados. Uh, uh, you know, Adam Gilchrist uh, plays that innings, uh, uh, makes the 100 what it felt like it came in no time and then starts pointing towards his glove because he had the... Squash ball, was it? A squash ball, that's right, yeah. yeah. Like, did, did you know anything about it? Or like, what was your reaction when you saw him point towards that squash ball in his glove? I actually don't really remember too much, like if it was spoken about or it was common knowledge or... Um, he may have, I think he may have spoken about it before that world, uh, that final, um, that he'd been using it. But um, yeah, pr- he probably had been. Um, he'd really tested my memory here, mate. <laughs> that's <laughs> the point the, of the show. <laughs> I, I, I know that. That's um, that's one of those things that um, yeah, I, I definitely um, don't remember as much. But um, yeah, I just know that it definitely worked for him. <laughs> so. Um, you know, he hit some some extremely clean balls and and very big as well. And uh, yeah, again, just a player that came to the occasion when he was needed. Yeah, he was a good celebrator as well. Very good. <laughs> he definitely enjoyed the celebration. We actually talking about the celebration. There was two parts to it. Actually, it was we 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 finished the game, and like I said, it was already dark, and we stayed at the ground, and we went to sing the team song on the ground. And a couple of the security guys that were there were, I think they were in the army and they were quite big, big dudes. And they told us to get off the pitch because they wanted to go home. And we're just like, we're here to celebrate like we've just won a World Cup. And they're like, get the F off now. Like, <laughs> and we're like, oh. <laughs> so I think we quickly sung the song and got out of there. And then the next day we were invited to, well, James Packer had a, had a boat that he would, hire or, or whatever it was this massive boat that we were invited to and went on that the next day i actually got a knock on my door at oh, i don't know what time it was it was pretty early by andrew simons so he he hadn't slept i had probably about maybe two hours sleep and he's knocked on my door and he's gone, come on, we're going up to the penthouse. They've got drinks up there for us. So it was someone that was looking after us through the World Cup had got drinks for us. And there's actually a photo of us, me, Simons, and um, uh, Richie McGuinness, who was our one of the, the coaches at the time, up on the balcony overwatching the guys uh, with the trophy. So it was Gilly, uh, McGrath, and Ponting. They had the trophy down on the beach. So we're overlooking that. So the cameramen have turned around. The photographers have taken photos of us in our jocks. And I think Andrew was in his uh, – or Roy was in his uh, his Y-fronts. His, he used to wear those white Y-fronts all the time. Um, and I think I I might have had my shirt off or something like that as well. But, um, yeah, we had champagne in our hands. And then – so we, we've done that. We've, we've had a, a champagne breakfast. And then we went onto Packer's Boat. Um, and yeah, we got on the boat and there was everything there for us, drinks, um, you know, seafood, et cetera, et cetera. They had jet skis. They had all these like play, play things to do. Like there was a, I think a trampoline at the back, um, as well, where you could just jump around on. Um, so guys were doing all these different things. I was on the jet skis and, um, Shane Watson was on. We actually had a bit of a collision at the back end of the day. Yeah. We actually crashed into each other, um, I got knocked off the jet ski into the water. I felt like I was probably pretty lucky, to be honest. Um, 
but yeah, it was um, a pretty pretty cool like day. Uh, you know, it was all put on for us, and we really celebrated and enjoyed each other's company. And um, we actually found. I don't know if Mike Hussey will want me telling me anyone this. I don't know if it's common knowledge or not, but um, Huss had gone missing for a little bit and we weren't sure where he was. We're like, where's Huss? Because well, he he was good at celebrating as well. He enjoyed the, the time to celebrate. And I don't think he'd got much sleep, if any at all, uh, from the night before. And um, couldn't find him, couldn't find him. We're thinking, oh, I hope he hasn't gone off the edge, you know, and he's in the, in the ocean somewhere. Yeah. Um, anyway, we couldn't. Um, one of the boys couldn't open the toilet door so they had to like get it opened and there's Huss he's fallen asleep on the toilet (laughs) (laughs) so he'd he'd hidden away in the toilet to get a little bit of a kip and um, yeah but then he was like awake and he was back on he was fine so yeah he just needed that 10 minute sleep I think but uh, yeah it was it was a great time and great time to celebrate and um, yeah we all enjoyed it uh, it sounds like quite the celebration, uh, to be sure. Uh, and but was there uh, anything after you came back? Uh, you know, was there uh, like a ticket take uh, parade or anything? Yeah, special I reception. Know. I mean, people in Australia were just so used to you guys winning World Cups. They're like, yeah, whatever. They yeah, just I, won another I, World Cup. I can't recall. Uh, maybe, but I don't really recall. It's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those things. The only time I, the celebration we had was that 2015 World Cup because we're all in Melbourne. And we went to, is it Yagen Square? Uh, what's the square across the road from the train station there? It's Federation Square? Ah, Fed Square, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's it. Um, so, yeah, there was a, a, a little ticket tech parade there or whatever. And, <laughs> yeah, guys were pretty dusty. And um, that was the story that George Bailey had broken the, the World Cup and got it fixed by oh, some yes, engineer. So, um, yeah, we had the second um, World Cup trophy apparently at that parade. But, yeah, um, yeah, I think that, that World Cup in 07, I don't think there was anything planned afterwards. I mean, that's the thing about when you play for your country. It's You, you get back home and then you go back to your own states where you live. So, um, it's really hard to, to keep guys together. But was there a feeling also, Mitch, of like, like I said, Glenn McGrath had just retired uh, right after that final. Uh, you knew... Adam Gilchrist, Matthew Hayden, uh, uh, while there were these young uh, guys like you and uh, and Shane Watson and a few others who were the future of Australian cricket, uh, and some at their absolute peak, like Ponting and uh, Michael Hussey had just um, come into his own, Andrew Simons as well. Uh, but was there a feeling uh, at any point, especially as the World Cup neared its end and during these celebrations where uh, there was a bit of, oh, like this is the last stand or the last dance uh, for a few of these legends of the game? Yeah, there definitely was. And um, I I don't think they wanted it to feel that way, though. They just wanted to get on with it and and enjoy their their cricket and their last moments. Um, Yeah, I know, especially with McGrath, like he just... He just got on with the job. Um, he didn't want the fuss. He just wanted to enjoy that um, World Cup, and and he did. Um, and, and I guess it's funny when you're the young guy coming through, or the or the inexperienced guy coming through. Like for me, it's like I look at it and go, "Man, this guy could still he still outperforms me." So and it's like he's finishing up his career, and he's still still got it. Like he could play for another five years and you'd, you'd think he'd still be competitive um 
but yeah, there's that time when you retire and, and it was his time and um, yeah, it was just another opportunity, I guess. And But yeah, it was it was very special to be, like I said, a very special World Cup for me for those reasons as well because getting that chance to be in a World Cup but with those caliber of players. That's something about World Cups that, you know, we are in an era of World Test Championships and T20 World Cups every two years, all these fancy uh, uh, leagues, T20 leagues all around the world. Uh, but there's just something special about a men's 50-over World Cup where, you know, that team that wins it will be world champions and they'll know it as well. So even though the relevance of 50-over cricket itself might be up for uh, debate, uh, the team that lifts that trophy in Ahmedabad at the end of this uh, we'll get that same feeling that you guys did back in 2007. Yeah, there's still bragging rights. It's still You're still World Cup champions and it still means a lot. And I think I can see that with the players out there in this World Cup. It, it's definitely ramped up and you can see that it does mean a lot to them. Um, yeah, every time it rolls around a World Cup, it, it definitely um, drives teams to, to be the best. So, um, And that's what the World Cup is all about. It's It's... You want to be lifting up that trophy at the end. It, it, it shows that you are the best one team in the world, uh, one day team in the world. So, um, yeah, the debate will always be there what's happening in between uh, with one day cricket and obviously with T20 cricket, how it's been so dominant and, and probably taken over. But, yeah, I think when it comes around World Cup time, you definitely feel a difference and you feel that it is a World Cup and, you know, it, Look, we're seeing some some teams just performing at the right time now, and yeah, it, it does. It means it means so much. And I I look at my World Cups that I've been involved in, and and I look at 07 and I compare it to 2015, and it was about playing hard, but it was also about enjoying it. And I was able to enjoy that 2015 World Cup in Australia because I made it. I made a promise to myself, I guess, to to be able to work hard in my training um, and then go out and enjoy myself as well because we had a week in between games. So I wanted to be able to remember those moments as well. It wasn't just about the on-field stuff. It was about getting out there and, and um, you know, being with fans as well because there was people that were would come up to us and say, oh, well played and, and they were like right into the World Cup and, and supporting us. So it was all about everything like that it was that enjoyment and um yeah we we're seeing that in this world cup the that teams are are really taking it um seriously and i hope they are enjoying it as as much as of i have in in my my time and this podcast is all about enjoyment me enjoying your company you hopefully enjoying my company but all of you are enjoying mitchell johnson's wonderful stories from uh, uh his wonderful career and and what a great show this has been mitch thank you so much for that um and what we strive to do is to be the number one number one cricket podcast but thank you so much already for listening to us liking our show subscribing to us but keep 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 spreading the love keep writing the wonderful reviews that you already are um, and i can see we are rising in the podcast rankings they matter a lot to us uh, please help us uh, Get to the very top, but also, like Australia in 2007, stay at the very top. We'll speak to you very soon. Sports Social Podcast Network.